Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. During the Christmas season, when we use the expression peace on earth, we reduce it to a platitude, an absurd utopian ideal where one day everyone will magically hold hands and get along. And then we congratulate ourselves for endorsing our correct view of how the world should work. We do this all the time with all our pet political issues. In doing so, we find ourselves not on the side of God, but on the side of the Caesars, standing in the line of an endless procession of philosopher tyrants who imagine all the people a certain way and then march on them to impose their will. When the angels in Luke shout peace on earth, they have no such issue. They are at peace because they have taken themselves out of the equation. And, as I just said, neither they nor the shepherds have any issues, no ideals, no agendas, nothing of themselves to impose, just something of themselves to give to the cause of their master's command, which puts everything in order, silences every voice, and establishes peace on earth. In the Gospel of Luke, It's the exact same mechanism of peace as Caesar's, with a much different outcome. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 15 to 20. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 461 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We continue in the Gospel of Luke with the sublime disobedience of the biblical shepherds of Israel. I say disobedience when in fact it is sublime obedience to the voice of the angel surrounded by the heavenly hosts delivering the word or the words to be more precise of elohim they are responding to the heavenly instruction which is the responsibility of those entrusted with the lord's staff to care for his flocks When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They are responding not to the decree of Caesar Augustus, Richard, 
but to the decree that came to them from the heavenly authority through the angel, which was a mediator, the messenger of God and the heavenly hosts. The Lord has made it known to them, and they are on the authority of the Lord going straight to Bethlehem to see this thing. And of course, we are once again dealing with the thing that has been set before them in the Gospel of Luke, the Rima, and that is what Luke has been talking about this whole time, setting the things forth. Last time, we spent time talking about the angel. If you read closely, it doesn't say the angel was with a bunch of angels. It says that the angel was with a heavenly host. It's unfortunate that we use the word host. The word in Greek is stratia, which is army. A clearer translation would be, there was with the angel a multitude of a heavenly army praising God and saying. If you think of it from that point of view, you have an angel with a message backed up by an entire army. It doesn't say that they're angels. It just says that they're a heavenly army. We have one angel and an army. And then when it comes time, the entire army cries out with its war cry. But the war cry is a heavenly war cry, which is praising God, praising their leader. Glory to God. Now, when you hear an army declaring glory to their leader, now you understand this. This isn't a bunch of angels in white robes with uh, harps or something like this. This is an army ready for war. And this army is declaring peace. So if you read closely, it's not an angel surrounded by angels. It's focusing on this army. And then in the verse that you read for today, it says the angels were gone away. Okay, now that makes it a little more complicated because before it was one angel and an army, and now it's angels. You can read that in multiple ways. Maybe we have more than one messenger, or maybe it's referring to the entire army as an army of angels. It's actually not clear from the text. I don't think it's particularly germane either. I don't think it's a huge point, but I think the one point that we need to really stress that I didn't stress last time was that it's an army. This is a setting for war. This is how we see, as we've been talking since the beginning of Luke, Caesar versus God, one Caesar on earth versus one Caesar in the heavens. This is the clash that is happening. And this is why this is this sublime disobedience, because the shepherds are disobeying the earthly Caesar in order to follow this glorified heavenly general, heavenly Caesar. What's really powerful also is not just the fact that it underscores what we've been saying about the showdown, the grudge match between Elohim and Caesar, but it's striking that they were terribly frightened before the appearance of the army. That accentuates the fact that their fear is of the message and not of the fireworks show, which elevates the status of the shepherds. So critical because most people who fear Caesar Augustus would, in fact, fear the army of angels or the army in general, however, you take the verse. But they were terribly frightened 
when an angel singular of the Lord stood before them to proclaim the judgment of the good news of the gospel, as you eloquently explained in Greek last week, Richard. So it's powerful on multiple levels. We pay attention to the terminology. It's taking the militaristic terminology of the Caesars and turning it around and pointing it back in their face. That's exactly how Ezekiel works. I mean, I remember doing Ezekiel in a Bible study at church years ago and just being amazed in the way that one has to unpack all of this militaristic and mystical pseudo-pagan imagery that is co-opted by the text. Because it's taking all of this symbolism, which people are used to in a particular historical setting, which boils down to God and country music and fireworks, and it's co-opting it and using it and redirecting it so that you understand that there is one God in the heavens above all the gods. This is the same mechanism here. But the peace that's being proclaimed by the army is not a piece that you find between the pages of a Hallmark card or on a PBS special, Can't We All Just Get Along?, which is how it's pitched, so to speak, on your Christmas card. That's not the peace on earth we're talking about. It's a peace that reflects the Pax Romana in opposition to the Pax Romana. This is how you have to understand peace on earth in the Gospel of Luke. It's an anti-Pax Romana, meaning it is being imposed against the will of the functional philosopher tyrant. Because shalom, as we've said many times, reflecting the teaching of Father Paul, is when everything is in order and there is no debate, because the Father has spoken the Father being God the Father in Scripture, and His will is accomplished, which we explained at length last week, is what the Evdokia reflects in the text. So that is the peace on earth. And as you pointed out beautifully, Rich, there's an army here to make sure that peace is enforced. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. Verse 16 strikes me differently for the first time because now it's as though Mary and Joseph were not obedient in the way in Luke that the shepherds were obedient. So they obeyed the command of Caesar Augustus and therefore went to their supposed city of origin I'm going to keep saying supposed city of origin because they're from Nazareth. They uprooted themselves. They were in Galilee, which reflected the will of God because that's where they were found. Where you are found is where God puts you. If Caesar tells you to go somewhere, you are already in tension with where you were found. And now the shepherds are going where God sent them. 
And they found Mary and Joseph there and the baby laying in the feeding trough. So we have these words that are being followed. And this is really important to see because, you know, in sorting out what is actually happening in the text, you know, like I said a moment ago, being very careful that I'm reading exactly what the words are in the text. And we see that Joseph, for whatever reason, followed the decree and ended up in Bethlehem because that was where his family was from. We don't know the reason. We just know what the text says. There was a decree that everybody has to go to his home city, right? City. And we talked about how the city is the basis for Roman civilization, and that's how you can tell where people are from. Then we have these shepherds who are spending time in the field. Do they live there? Do they live somewhere else? We don't know. Text doesn't say. We just know that they're in the field of the field. That's all we know. But we do know there is one decree that they absolutely follow, and that's we have to go to Bethlehem because there is this child that the heavenly messenger told us we need to go check out. There was absolutely a decree from Caesar Augustus, which Joseph followed, and there was absolutely a decree from the heavenly messenger, which the shepherds followed. These two are in opposition. We have these words, we have these commandments, and we have these armies behind them, backing them up. You know, if Joseph said, I'm not going, He would be dealing with the Roman host, the Roman army. The result is that they both end up in Bethlehem, but Joseph, because he followed the message of Caesar, and the shepherds, because they followed the message from the heavens. And this direction from the heavens, this word from the heavens and obedience to it was the main theme we were dealing with in chapter one, and now we see this theme developing in chapter two. The angels have successfully evangelized the shepherds because they followed this good word from the glorified heavenly Caesar. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. Once again, we have this movement of the instruction through the narrative. There is an itinerary, as it were, of the gospel in the gospel. We saw this from womb to womb in the opening of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. And now we see it here. And now the shepherds are coming to deliver the Gospel to Mary and Joseph. They are coming to teach the Gospel. They are coming to inform what they had been told about Jesus. And all who heard the Gospel the Evangelion, the good news, wondered about what was told them by the shepherds. So this is the outcome, the fruit, the product, the benefit, the output, the result of their obedience to the will of God In the wilderness, in the field, which you explained last week, the value of this term, the field, keeping watch over their flocks. They remained faithful in their function as shepherds, 
and now the gospel is being spread. The role of these shepherds is important because they heard the message, they witnessed the deed, and then they were responsible for this rima and teaching it, speaking it. And that was the reason for everyone wondering. So these people, these shepherds, became the angeli. They became functionally those who are delivering the message. I don't want to get spiritual. They're functioning as messengers. Their job is to go and spread this word, but there's an ambiguity here. Are they telling Mary and Joseph about the word that they heard, or are they leaving and then going to tell this word, or both? We're not sure, because it just says that while they were there, they went around and told it, peri, so probably around, but then we find out Mary's reactions to the things, and the things are rimata, the ones that the shepherds are saying to the people all around. So there's a little bit of ambiguity here. Who are the shepherds actually speaking this word to? Whom are the shepherds evangelizing? Now, Mary was not entirely ignorant that this was going to happen. I mean, we had the whole poem that she herself recited or composed or whatever that she said, but we have this role of the shepherds as not just bearing witness to the word they heard, but also seeing things and then spreading that word to the next. And this word rima, rimata in the plural, keeps appearing. That is the job of the shepherds. Just like we saw the angel before, we saw Gabriel, now the shepherds are spreading this. So another point that I wanted to bring up that's related is Father Paul always makes this very fine distinction about King David, about how he was victorious when he was shepherd, but as he became more and more kingly, he became more and more problematic. If you read First and Second Samuel, it was in his shepherd manifestation, I'll say, which is not a great word to use, but for lack of a better word, we'll say manifestation. In his shepherd manifestation, he was faithful because he counted on God. Here we have the shepherds who count completely on this word and are in charge of evangelizing. That's why it struck me last week, Richard, that the role of the shepherds here is to restore or to establish the new David, the functional David, who is not the David who is some kind of tribal cultic figure struggling to establish some political dynasty in the land, but the David who reflects the Evangelion that the angels announced here and the shepherds submitted to. I think that's what's happening, because if you think back earlier in chapter 2 of Luke, it felt really uncomfortable that they were going back to the city of David under the boot of Caesar. And that's being undone here by the obedience and submission and now the instruction being carried forward by the shepherds here in chapter 2 of Luke. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. This is classic scripture. It reflects the conception of Jesus earlier in the Gospel of Luke, because Mary heard the instruction, she submitted to the instruction, and the instruction became fruitful inside her womb. It took flesh. It's as simple as that. 
It was written on her heart, and that is what is being reflected here in verse 19 of chapter 2. That reflects the language of the Old Testament. The law is inscribed on your heart. That is what's happening. The shepherds are evangelizing Mary again, just as Gabriel evangelized Mary earlier. She is pondering the things that Luke is preaching to Theophilus. And that is a technical statement because once again, it is the rimata. We are talking about the things that Luke is setting forward. It is the Lucan monologue. He keeps driving it into us. And Mary keeps bowing her head and accepting it. And that is why it keeps getting written and inscribed. She doesn't debate. She doesn't argue. She doesn't philosophize. She simply meditates on the precepts of the Lord. Later in the Gospel of Luke, we will hear in chapter 11, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts that nursed you. And Jesus will answer, Blessed rather are those that hear the word of God and keep it. And Richard, I was looking at that verse in Arabic, and the literal translation of the Arabic is, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and memorize it. And that is certainly the spirit of, of verse 19 here. She is pondering the rimata that Luke is drilling into us and the shepherds are carrying forward from the angels. Hafala in Arabic, I love that because yes, it means to like protect and hold, but it's also used for memorizing. And in Greek, from what I can tell, the same thing with the word simvalo, which means to keep together, to hold on to. This is in contrast with 18, because all they that heard it wondered those things that were told them by the shepherds. And, you know, whenever I see wonder and how amazed everybody was, fabmazo is something that makes me nervous when people get really impressed. And that is in contrast to Mary, who kept her mouth shut, who kept all these rimata, all these words in her mind. She didn't need to go wonder about it. She didn't need to chit chat about it. She didn't need to gossip about it. She didn't. So there's a role for the shepherds to spread this word. And there's a role for Mary to hold this word in her heart because she's going to be raising this baby, Jesus. But the people who are amazed, I don't know, after Matthew and Mark, I'm not impressed by the people who are amazed. We'll see. Maybe Luke is different. Maybe Luke likes the people to be amazed. But nothing's shown me that so far because we had the amazed people when it came to John and all this kind of stuff. But amazed people are not obedient people. So, you know, they it doesn't mean they can't be, but it certainly doesn't mean they are. So we'll see how these amazed people end up, but I don't have a lot of hope in them. I have hope in the shepherds whose job it is to spread this word, and the role of Mary to hold on to this word and to treasure this word. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Again, they are reflecting the behavior and the words of the angels and the heavenly hosts. And I'm saying angels and heavenly hosts to reflect the precision 
of your observation earlier in today's discussion, Dr. Benton. But the point is, the obedience of the shepherds is striking. It reminds me of Paul's statement about imitation of the faith of Abraham. You don't imitate Abraham, you imitate his faith. In other words, the angel trusted the Evangelion and regurgitated the Evangelion. The heavenly armies shouted with jubilation the Evangelion, giving glory to their commander and their general and their captain, Elohim. And the shepherds are simply imitating this faith in Elohim without hesitation, with pure obedience. That is the premise. That is the basis. That is the cause and foundation of the peace that is at the heart of the instruction. They are giving themselves over to the one who is the source of the instruction, just as had been told them. That's what this whole system of Scripture is based on. It's literature. Everyone is uncomfortable with this, but once you realize it's wisdom literature, and wisdom requires that you give yourself to wisdom. And it's a different wisdom than Greek philosophy. It's a wisdom that works against human wisdom. That's why it feels sometimes like sandpaper, maybe more often than not. But the outcome is sweeter than honey. As scripture itself says about the land of promise, the land flowing with milk and honey, it's not talking about real estate in Palestine. How many times have we said this? But it is talking about something beautiful and sweet if you are willing to do as the shepherds have done in the story, if you are willing to imitate their faith. They simply told the word, they continued to speak the word, and then they glorified and praised God, as you said, Father, in the same way that we saw the armies of the heavens do. For everything they heard and saw as it was told. How do you talk about what was told to you about what you saw, right? because the word is primary, the rimata, the words, are primary. As we've seen consistently from the angel speaking to Zechariah all the way now to the shepherds, it's always the word, and it's the word going out, and it's the word being preached, and it's the word being held in the mind. It's not about being amazed at the cool stuff. It's being faithful to this word. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.